0: Chapter Nineteen of the Golden Dream. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Dream by R. M. Ballantine. Chapter Nineteen The Wilderness Again A Splendid Valley Gigantic Trees and Waterfalls. Tom Meets with an Accident both meet with many surprises—mysteries, caverns, doleful sounds, and grizzly bear-catchers. Mounted on gallant steeds, Ned and his friend again appear in the wilderness in the afternoon of a beautiful autumn day. They had ridden far that day. Dust covered their garments, and foam bespattered the chests of their horses, but the spirits of men and beasts were not yet subdued, for their muscles by long practice were inured to hardship many days had passed since they left the scene of their recent successful labors and many a weary league had been traversed over the unknown regions of the interior they were lost in one sense of that term charmingly romantically lost that is to say neither ned nor tom had the most distant idea of where they were or what they were coming to But both of them carried pocket compasses, and they knew that by appealing to these, and to the daily jotting of the route they had traveled, they could ascertain pretty closely the direction that was necessary to be pursued in order to strike the great San Joaquin River. Very different was the scenery through which they now rode from that of the northern diggings. The most stupendous and magnificent mountains in the world surrounded on all sides the valley through which they passed, giving to it an air of peaceful seclusion. Yet it was not gloomy, for the level land was broad and fertile, and so varied in aspect that it seemed as though a beautiful world were enclosed by those mighty hills. Large tracts of the valley were covered with wild oats and rich grass, affording excellent pasturage for the deer that roamed about in large herds. Lakes of various sizes sustained thousands of wildfowl on their calm breasts, and a noble river coursed down its entire length. Oaks, chestnuts, and cypresses grew in groups all over the landscape, and up on the hillsides firs of gigantic size reared their straight stems high above the surrounding trees. But the point in the scenery which struck the travelers as being most peculiar was the precipitous character of the sides of many of the vast mountains and the flatness of their summits. Tom Collins, who was a good judge of heights, having traveled in several mountainous regions of the world, estimated the nearest precipices to be upwards of three thousand feet, without a break from top to bottom; but the ranges in the background towered far above these and must have been at least double. "I never saw anything like this before, Tom," said Ned in a suppressed voice. "I did not believe such sublime scenery existed," replied his companion. I have traveled in Switzerland and Norway, but this surpasses both." Truly, it was worth while to give up our gold digging in order to see this. "Yet there are many," rejoined Ned, "who travel just far enough into California to reach the diggings, where they remain till their fortunes are made, or till their hopes are disappointed, and then they return to England and write a book, perchance, in which they speak as authoritatively as if they had swept the whole region, north and south, east and west little wonder that we find such travelers contradicting each other flatly one speaks of california as being the most splendid agricultural country in the world and advises everyone to emigrate at once while another condemns it as an arid unproductive region fit only for the support of indians and grizzly bears the fact being that both speak correctly enough it may be of the very small portion of california they have respectively visited Why, the more I travel in this wonderful land, the more I feel how very little I know about it, and had I returned to England without having seen this valley, I should have missed one of the most remarkable sights, not only in the country, but, I verily believe, in the world. If you ever return home, Tom, and are persuaded, at the earnest request of numerous friends, to write a book, don't dogmatize as to facts." Remember how limited your experience has been, and don't forget that facts in one valley are not facts at all in another valley eight or ten miles off. Perhaps, suggested Tom Collins, patting the arched neck of his steed, perhaps the advice with which you have just favored me might with greater propriety have proceeded from me to you, for, considering the copious variety of your sentiments on this and other subjects, and the fluency with which you utter them, It is likely that you will rush into print long before I timidly venture, with characteristic modesty, even to grasp the pen. As Tom ceased speaking, they came upon a forest of pine or fir-trees, in the midst of which towered a tree of such gigantic height that its appearance caused them simultaneously to draw up and gaze at it in silent wonder. "'Can it be possible,' said Ned, "'that our eyes don't deceive us?' "'Surely some peculiarity in the atmosphere gives that tree false proportions.' Without answering, Tom galloped towards the tree in question, closely followed by his friend. Instead of any delusive haze being cleared away, however, the tree grew larger as they approached, and when they halted about twenty yards from it, they felt that they were indeed in the presence of the monarch of the forest.' The tree, which they measured after viewing it in wondering admiration from all points of view, was ninety-three feet in circumference, and it could not have been less than three hundred and sixty feet high. They little knew that many years afterwards the bark of this giant tree, to the height of a hundred and sixteen feet, was to be removed to England, built up in its original form, and exhibited in the great crystal palace of Sydenham. Yet so it was and part of the mother of the forest may be seen there at this day. Towards evening the travellers drew near to the head of the valley. We must be approaching a waterfall of no ordinary size, remarked Tom, as they rode through the dark shades of the forest which were pretty extensive there. I have heard its roar for some time, answered Ned, but until we clear this belt of trees we shan't see it just then the roar of the fall burst upon them with such deafening violence that they involuntarily started. It seemed as if a mighty torrent had burst its bounds and was about to sweep them away along with the forest through which they rode. Pressing forward in eager haste, they soon found that their having doubled round a huge mountain barrier which the trees had hitherto concealed from them was the cause of the sudden increase in the roar of the fall, but they were still unable to see it owing to the dense foliage that overshadowed them. As they galloped on the thunder of falling waters became more deep and intense, until they reached an elevated spot, comparatively free from trees, which overlooked the valley, and revealed a sight such as is not equaled even by Niagara itself. A succession of wall-like mountains rose in two tiers before them, literally into the clouds, for several of the lower clouds floated far below the highest peaks, and from the summit of the highest range a river, equal to the Thames at Richmond, dropped sheer down a fall of above two thousand feet. Here it met the summit of the lower mountain range, on which it burst with a deep-toned, sullen, never-ceasing roar, comparable only to eternal thunder. A white cloud of spray received the falling river in its soft embrace, and sent it forth again turbulent and foam bespeckled, towards its second leap, another thousand feet, into the plain below. The entire height of the fall was above three thousand feet, its sublimity no language can convey, its irresistible effect on the minds of the wanderers was to turn their thoughts to the almighty creator of so awe-inspiring and wonderful a scene. Here they discovered another tree, which was so large that their thoughts were diverted even from the extraordinary cataract for a short time. Unlike the previous one, this monarch of the woods lay prostrate on the ground, but its diameter near the root was so great that they could not see over it, though seated on horseback. It measured a hundred and twenty feet in circumference, and when standing must have been little, if at all, short of five hundred feet in height. Surrounded as they were by such noble and stupendous works of God, the travelers could not find words to express their feelings. Deep emotion has no articulate language. The heaving breast and the glowing eye alone indicate the fervor of the thoughts within. For a long time they sat gazing round them in silent wonder and admiration. Then they dismounted to measure the great tree, and after that Ned sat down to sketch the fall, while his companion rode forward to select a spot for camping on. Tom had not proceeded far when he came upon the track of wheels in the grass, a sight which surprised him much, for into that remote region he had supposed few travellers ventured, even on horseback. The depth and breadth of the tracks, too, surprised him not a little. They were much deeper and broader than those caused by any species of cart he had yet seen or heard of in the country, and the width apart was so great that he began to suspect he must have mistaken a curious freak of nature for the tracks of a gigantic vehicle following the track for some distance he came to a muddy spot where the footprints of men and horses became distinctly visible a little further on he passed the mouth of what appeared to be a cavern and being of an inquisitive disposition he dismounted and tied his horse to a tree intending to examine the entrance To enter a dark cave in a wild, unknown region, with the din of a thundering cataract filling the ears, just after having discovered tracks of a mysterious nature in the neighborhood, was so trying to Tom's nervous system that he half resolved to give it up. But the exploration of a cavern has a fascination to some dispositions, which everyone cannot understand. Tom said, pshaw, to himself in an undertone and boldly stepping into the dark portals of the cavern, he disappeared. Meanwhile, Edward Sinton finished his sketch, and supposing that Tom was waiting for him in advance, he mounted and galloped forward as fast as the nature of the ground would allow. Soon he came to the tracks before mentioned, and shortly after to the muddy spot with the footprints. Here he drew rein and dismounted to examine the marks more closely. Our hero was as much perplexed as his friend had been at the unusually broad tracks of the vehicle which had passed that way. Leading his horse by the bridle, he advanced slowly until he came to the spot where Tom's horse stood fastened to a tree, a sight which alarmed him greatly, for the place was not such as anyone would have selected for an encampment, yet had any foul play befallen his friend, he knew well that the horse would not have been left quietly there. Sorely puzzled and filled with anxious fears he examined the spot carefully and at last came upon the entrance to the cavern before which he paused uncertain what to do the shadows of evening were fast falling on the scene and he experienced a feeling of dread as he gazed into the profound gloom he was convinced that tom must be there but the silence and the length of time he had been absent led him to fear that some accident had befallen his friend ho tom he shouted on entering are you there there was a rolling echo within but no voice replied to the question again ned shouted at the full pitch of his lungs and this time he thought he heard a faint reply hurrying forward eagerly as quickly as he dared he repeated his shout but the declivity of the entrance became so great that he lost his footing and well-nigh fell headlong down a steep incline He succeeded, however, in regaining his hold, and clambered back to the entrance as quickly as possible. Here he caught up a pine knot, struck a light, and kindled it, and with this torch held high above his head, advanced once more into the cavern. The voice of Tom Collins at this moment came loud and full from the interior. "'Take care, Ned. There's a sharp descent. I've tumbled down it, but I don't think I'm much hurt.' "'Cheer up, my boy,' cried Ned heartily. "'I'll get you out in a minute.' The next moment he stood beside his friend, who had risen from the rugged floor of the cave and sat on a piece of rock, resting his head on his hand. "'Are you badly hurt, my poor fellow?' said Ned, anxiously going down on one knee and endeavouring to raise his friend's head. "'I fear you are. Here, try a drop of this brandy.' "'That's it. Why, you look better already. Come now, let me examine you.' The spirit revived Tom at once, and he replied cheerfully as he submitted to inspection. "'All right, I was only stunned a little by the fall. "'Catch me exploring again without a light.' "'On examination Ned found to his great relief that his friend's hurts were slight. "'He had been stunned by the severity of his fall, but no bones were broken "'and only a few scratches received, so that after another sip of brandy "'he felt almost as well as ever. "'But he firmly resisted his companion's entreaty to leave the cavern. "'No, my boy,' said he, "'after paying such a price as entrance fee,' I'm not going to quit until I have explored the whole of this cave, so please go out for another pine knot or two, and I'll wait for you." Seeing that he was determined, Ned obeyed, and soon returned with several fresh torches, two of which were ignited, and a bright light sent far and wide into the roof of the cave, which was at a great height above them. The walls were of curious and in some places grotesque forms. Immense stalactites hung from the roof, and these were of varied colors pale green pink and white while some of them looked like cascades which sprang from the walls and had been petrified ere they quite reached the ground the roof was supported by natural pillars and various arched openings led into similar chambers some of which were larger and more curious than the outer one do you know said ned Sinton, as they sat down on a rock in one of the inner chambers to rest this place recalls vividly to my remembrance A strange dream which I had just before leaving England. Indeed, said Tom, I hope you're not a believer in dreams. Don't, I beseech you, take it into your head that it's going to be realized at this particular moment, whatever it was. It would take a very strong amount of belief indeed to induce me to expect the realization of that dream. Shall I tell it to you? Is it a very ghostly one? inquired Tom. No, not at all. Then out with it. Ned immediately began the narration of the remarkable dream with which this story opens, and as he went on to tell of how the stout old gentleman snuffed gold dust and ultimately shot up to the roof of the cave and became a golden stalactite, Tom Collins, whose risible tendencies were easily roused, roared with laughter until the vaulted caverns echoed again. At the end of one of these explosions the two friends were struck dumb, by certain doleful and mysterious sounds which proceeded from the further end of the inmost chamber. In starting to his feet, Tom Collins let fall his torch, and in the convulsive clutch which he made to catch it, he struck the other torch out of Ned's hand, so that instantly both were left in the profoundest darkness, with their hearts beating like sledgehammers against their ribs. To flee was their first and natural impulse, but to flee in the dark "'over rough ground, and with very imperfect ideas "'as to the position of the cave's outlet, was dangerous. "'What is to be done?' ejaculated Tom Collins "'in a tone that indicated the perturbation of his heart too clearly. "'At that moment Ned remembered that he had a box of matches "'in the pocket of his hunting coat, so without answering "'he drew it forth, struck a light, and reignited the torches. "'Now, Tom,' he said, "'don't let us give way to unmanly fears.' I have no belief whatever in ghosts or spirits, good or evil, being permitted to come in visible or audible form to frighten poor mortals. Every effect has a cause, and I'm determined to find out the cause of these strange sounds. They certainly proceed from animal lungs, whether from man or beast remains to be seen. Go ahead, then, I'll follow," said Tom, whose courage had returned with the light. I'm game for anything that I can see." but I confess to you that I cannot stand howls and groans and darkness." Notwithstanding their utmost efforts, they failed to discover the cause of the mysterious sounds, which seemed at times to be voices muttering, while at other times they swelled out into a loud cry. All that could be certainly ascertained was that they proceeded from the roof of the innermost cavern, and that the center of that roof was too high to be discerned by torchlight what shall we do now inquired tom we shall go to the summit of the hill above this cave and see what is to be seen there always look at both sides of a mystery if you would fathom it come along in a few minutes they stood in open air and once more breathed freely mounting their horses they ascended the steep slope of the hill above the cave and after some trouble reached the summit here the first thing that met their gaze was a camp-fire, and near to it several men engaged in harnessing their horses to a large wagon or van. The frantic haste with which they performed the operation convinced Ned that he had discovered the cause of the mysterious voices, and that he and Tom had been the innocent cause of frightening the strangers nearly out of their wits. So engrossed were they with their work that our travellers advanced within the circle of light of their fire before they were discovered. The man who first saw them uttered a yell, and the whole party turned round, seized their rifles, and, with terror depicted on their countenances, faced the intruders. "'Who comes here?' shouted one. "'Friends,' answered Ned, laying down his rifle and advancing. Instantly the men threw down their arms and resumed the work of harnessing their horses. "'If ye be friends,' cried the one who spoke first, "'give us a hand.' I guess all the fiends in the bottomless pit are located just below our feet. Listen to me for one moment, gentlemen, cried Ned Sinton. I think I can relieve your minds. What have you heard or seen? At these words the men stopped and looked inquiringly at their questioner. Seen? Stranger, we've seen nothing, but we've heard a sight we have, I calculate. We heerd the imps o' darkness talkin' as plain as I hear you. At first I thought it was somebody at the foot of the hill, but all of a sudden the imps took to larfin' as if they'd split just under my feet. So I yelled out to my mate here to come and yoke the beasts and get away as slick as we could. We was just about ready to slope when you appeared." Ned now explained to them the cause of their alarms, and on search being made a hole was found, as he had anticipated, close at hand among the bushes, which communicated with the cavern below, and formed a channel for the conveyance of the so-called mysterious sounds. "'And now,' said Ned, "'may I ask permission to pass the night with you?' you're welcome stranger replied he who seemed to be the chief of the band a tall bearded american named croft who seemed more like a bandit than an honest man his comrades too six in number appeared a wild and reckless set of fellows with whom one would naturally desire to hold as little intercourse as possible but most men at the californian diggings had more or less the aspect of brigands so ned senton and his companion felt little concern as to their characters although they did feel a little curious as to what had brought them to such a wild region if it is not taking too great a liberty said ned after answering the thousand questions put to him in rapid succession by his yankee host may i ask what has brought you to this out-of-the-way valley bear catching answered the man shortly as he addressed himself to a large venison steak which a comrade had just cooked for him. "'Bear-catching?' ejaculated Ned. "'Aye, and screaming hard work it is, too, I guess. But it pays well.' "'What do you do with them when caught?' inquired Tom Collins in a somewhat skeptical tone. "'Take em down to the cities and sells em to fight with wild bulls.' At this answer, our travelers stared at the man incredulously. "'You're strangers here, I see,' he resumed. "'Else you'd know that we have bull and bear fights. "'The grizzlies are chained by one leg, and the bulls let loose at em. "'The bulls charge like all possessed, "'but they find it hard to do much damage to Caleb, "'whose hide is like a double-extra rhinoceros. "'The grizzlies generally get the best of it, "'and if they was let loose... They'd chaw up the bulls in no time, they would. There's a great demand for 'em just now, and my trade is catching 'em alive here in the mountains. The big Yankee stretched out his long limbs and smoked his pipe with the complacent aspect of a man who felt proud of his profession. Do you mean that you seven men catch full-grown grizzly bears alive and take them down to the settlements? inquired Ned in amazement. Certainly I do, replied the bear catcher. "'And why not, stranger?' "'Because I should have thought it impossible.' "'Nothing's impossible,' replied the man quietly. "'But how do you manage it?' Instead of replying, the Yankee inquired if the strangers would stay over next forenoon with them. "'With much pleasure,' answered Ned, not a little amused at the invitation, as well as the man's brusque manner." Well, then, continued the bear-catcher, shaking the ashes out of his pipe and putting it into his hat, I'll let you see how we do it in the morning. Good night. So saying, he drew his blanket over his head and resigned himself to sleep, an example which was speedily followed by the whole party. End of Chapter Nineteen